Okay, so uh, welcome back to Unstandardized English. This is a podcast where I attempt to reach towards justice for the racially, linguistically, and neurologically minoritized. My name is J.P.B. Gerald. I am, let's just say, an educator, scholar, theorist, a lot of things. Mostly I'm a person who has a lot of opinions and thoughts, and I like to have conversations about these topics. Um, I live on unceded Muncie Lenape territory, which you probably know better as Queens, New York. And yeah, that's the show. So this week, um, I have a pretty interesting topic here. My research, um, my research for my doctorate is mostly structured, as you've probably heard by now, around... Uh, interviewing white people about whiteness uh, and sorry if you hear in the background my dog just he just decides it's time to lick himself whenever I record these things but if I don't have him in the room with me he will bang on the door so hopefully I can muffle it in the post-production anyway so um, I'm interviewing someone today, or I don't really like to call it interviews. I'm having a conversation with somebody today um, about being white in a, in a nominally progressive place, but a place that still ends up being very white, a sundown state originally, like Oregon. Um, and she's in the language space, and uh, we've had conversations before about this. And I think it'll be an interesting conversation because, you know, one of the things I can never study can truly never study is I cannot observe what it's like to be white in a very white place where you're also trying to do something differently from what the people around you are doing. People can tell me about it and she's going to tell me about it, but I can't see it. I wish I could be a fly on the wall when white people talk to white people about white people. So that's kind of what this is about. Um, in my life, you know, um, finishing school, um, if barring disaster in the next five weeks, I will have defended. Um, I record these early. It's only February 3rd, so um, I record these long before they're ready because I'm trying to juggle these recordings with when I have to be really working on my dissertation. And this week is a non-dissertation week, and then the next two weeks after this are heavy dissertation time. Then I'm going to record a bunch more episodes um, to sort of last me through the rest of the spring. Uh, so anyway, it's, um, it's long before the episode comes out, but, uh, you know, right now I've been thinking for a while, I've been trying to think what's my job after this, because I'm in an EDD program. And for those of you who don't know, maybe you're not American or something, that's a doctorate in education. The weird thing is that theoretically, most people with PhDs who become academics are, they become educators, right? Not all of them, but many of them, if they had a tenure track job, that is an education job. However, you're getting a doctorate in philosophy technically, even though most people are not philosophers. Um, so I'm literally getting a doctorate in education, which is to say my research is about education. It's not, when I say I interview, pe interview white people about white people, I'm interviewing them so that I can analyze a class I taught them, right? You know, uh, you know what happens after you take a class on whiteness? Uh, so it's not just, you know, there's something sort of anthropological in, in, in the interviews I'm doing, and there's a sociological aspect to it too, but ultimately it's like, 
where does the teaching influence them? And how did I create the classes that they're taking? Um, but the point is, I don't know what I'm going to do next year. Now, again, I'm recording this so early. Maybe I have a job by April 4th um, when you get to hear this. But, like, you know, this my program is not a full-time program. It's a, a part-time program. Somehow I have been, you know, a parent, not a single parent, obviously, but a parent to a toddler for the last, well, he hasn't been a toddler for the whole time. But, you know, he's been here for almost two years now. Will have been two years by the time you hear this. Um, during the pandemic, of course, but I don't want to claim the pandemic as a stressor because we are, we're all in that same situation. Um, and I was, I've been working full time and I've been, you know, in school you know, basically at night and when I have time. And then I've also been writing, not just my dissertation, which has only been fairly recently, I guess, compared to all this other stuff, but I wrote an entire book, which you're going to hear more and more about. Um, which I'm in the process of editing or will be editing in, in May, um, which will come out next year. Uh, and that's 125,000 words between those two writing projects. And that's not to mention all the other things I've write, written. I'm not bragging too much to say I'm just tired. And the type of writing that I'm doing, you know, the book, first of all, it takes a long time for a book to come out. Um, and second, the dissertation won't turn into any publications for a while. So my CV doesn't look all that impressive for, you know, places that are looking for somebody if I was even going to do it in a trap job. And I don't even know if I want to do that. But I th here's the, 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 the sad thing is I think I would be good at it. Like, I think academia is pretty terrible industry to work in, but I think I'd be a great professor. And I am a, a professor, technically. I'm an adjunct professor right now. Um, it's not my main job, but I also do that. Um, and so, you know... I think about what I want to do with my degree. There's a fair amount of things you can do because it's an EDD rather than a PhD, you know, and I have a lot of experience in adult education and I could just keep doing that. But whatever it is I, I do, I really wanted to use all the things I've learned. And I will tell you what I've learned in this podcast. Doing this podcast has been as valuable as any of the other studying or writing I've done. So I'm at an interesting crossroads finishing up school and not really knowing what's coming next. You know, I don't have to do anything. I have a job. I don't like it, but I have one. Um, there's an internal pressure, but there's no actual financial pressure for me. Um, and I just need to find out what the next thing is. Maybe I wait a year to look for more tenure track things because by then I will have five or six more publications that I'm already working on. Um, and they will have come out and I will have released my book. And, and I will have had a lot more adjuncting experience. Maybe I do that. I don't know. But for now, it's all up in the air. And for someone like me who likes to plan ahead, the fact that everything is up in the air is stressful. So you may hear some stress in my voice in this conversation or some of the questions I'm asking. Anyway, I hope that you enjoy the conversation with Caitlin Gunter about being white in Oregon in a place that people think of as progressive, but is still somehow extremely white. Enjoy. All right, folks, so welcome back to Unstandardized English. Uh, I'm JPB Gerald. You all know that. I just said that in the introduction. I'm here today with Kaylin Gunter, not Gunter, 
Um, and well, she's going to tell us a little bit about the work that she does, the, the research that she's done, and then we're going to have a conversation that may or may not actually be about that. So, Caitlin? Yeah, so um, I'm a PhD candidate um, at the University of Oregon in the Department of Linguistics. Um, I'm a sociophonetician, so my work centers around understanding socially structured variation um, in speech, and I'm also interested in how uh, listeners use knowledge about that information in tasks um, related to speech processing, so how we use our expectations and biases to understand speech. So, I mean, <laughs> I mean, when I hear that, you know, I, I'm interested, so how do you even measure something like My dissertation research is thinking um, a bit bigger in terms of sort of regional variation. Um, so I'm doing a production analysis that sort of computationally identifies what sort of aspects are informative and which L categories people use to kind of build expectations around socially structured variation. So if we hear the word fat, for example, um, are we likely to interpret that um, any variation in that vowel as something socially meaningful um, versus a different category like book, for example? And we know from sociolinguistic literature there should be some expectation around that. You know, it's fine. I find this interesting because um, I I had bad experiences in my initial forays in linguistics. I had a professor who just didn't. This is an undergrad. And I had a professor who just sort of mumbled into the into the ground like some professors do. And then we did do well on the test and he told us we weren't trying hard enough. So that was my first experience with linguistics and with like sentence trees and all that. So then I was really reluctant to ever look at words in that way again. Um, I'm always been interested in like close reading sort of like a, what I came to later understand was something more like a discourse analysis or a textual analysis. I didn't, we didn't call it that in high school. Um, but like looking at a text and really taking it apart or that sort of thing. Um, but you know, that to me was like, I always analyze it in a, and I don't even know what this is called. Maybe it's just literary analysis of like, you know, uh, you know, the really staccato sound of certain types of alliteration was, was evoking a certain feeling that sort of thing. And I actually write, I still write that way. Um, thinking that analysis through my head. But I think that, you know, for someone like me who had that turn off and then when I came into my master's and I, you know, I was a language teacher um, and I, I had to take classes in, not that, but similar things. And I was so reluctant to really engage in it because I'd had that bad experience. Um, and I always wonder, like, when you tell this to people who are not within this little box, how, how do people, you know, how do people respond to it? Because I think that there is a really, at least a kernel of really important information in there, depending on how it's expressed and so forth. But how do you communicate to people the, you know, the weight of it when they're not in, in the discipline? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think some days I struggle more with that than others. Um, but I try to remind people, especially outside of linguistics, that uh, we're pretty regularly talking to people whose language varies substantially from our own. Um, and how we process that speech is really important to understand, sort of from a scientific perspective. But I think it also provides us insights into uh, 
how people go about making judgments or evaluations of other people's speech. So there's sort of multiple layers and different ways to look at it, but I think, yeah, I tend to kind of try to capture people's attention by just having them be aware of how many accents they really listen to on a daily basis and, and sort of their biases that might go into their listening experiences. So what are some of the biases then that, that go into, you know, I mean, I, I, broad, I know the broad biases, but like some of the, the more granular things that go into, you know, the way people interpret different, you know, I guess style categories is what you're looking at. So. dissertation really is more focused on kind of linguistic processing and linguistic expectations. Um, but the sort of social biases we tend to see people come into the lab with are um, expectations about intelligence or um, friendliness or familiarity and things like that. Um, and I think a lot of those will influence whether or not people adapt kind of well to the speech around them. Um, and I know you had Melissa Baysberg on uh, your podcast a few weeks ago, and she talks a little bit about this with um, the sort of idea of native versus non-native speakers um, and how we tend to bring our biases into those contexts. And so if we're expecting that the speech is going to be really difficult for us to understand because of social biases we have, um, then we might actually find it's more difficult to understand. And so being able to kind of balance those expectations um, will help us process the speech more efficiently and easier. You know, this reminds me, I had an ex-coworker who was not very good at her job, but one of the things that, I mean, her being bad at her job was separate from what I'm about to say. She just was also very bad at her job. I'm not necessarily the very best at this job, but she was very bad at it. Um, this job that I still have. Um, and there we one of the things we do because we we are like employee trainers right that's what we do and um we have to develop courses for our clients um based on what the clients tell us so the clients never give us the right information so we have to go to subject matter experts who are also work for the client but like they're the ones who like the you know the, the directors say we have a new process train them on the process and we're like what information can you give us and they're like i don't know talk to these people so we go talk to the people and it's usually like someone who's been working there for 45 million years. And, you know, they're like the only person in the whole organization who knows anything about the program. Right. Um, and then they like retire and then they, anyway, it's, it's, it's an issue, but the, this particular one, and I can't even believe that this was three years ago now. Um, the guy was a Nigerian man who, you know, he was the guy who knew this program. And uh, there was a woman who was, she was the lead on this project. And she, you know, they, you had to have meetings with the subject matter expert to get, gain his knowledge. And he wasn't very clear. And I don't mean his voice. I mean, he didn't, he, he didn't speak directly. It was just hard to, to get him to, 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 to say what you need to hear him say which is a very separate thing from being able to or not being able to understand what he was actually saying, right? Like, I didn't understand what he was saying because it didn't make a lot of sense. <laughs> but, but like, I understood the words. You know what I'm saying? Right, yes. Uh, but yeah. the point I'm making is that every time she um, had a meeting with him without me because she started, the project started with her and they added me to the project because she wasn't doing a very good job. Um, she would come and she would say, just understand, he's very, very hard to understand. 
And then I would go and I, I'm expecting this man is going to be very, very hard to understand. And I get there and I was like, I understand everything this man is saying. He's hard to follow, <laughs> but he is not hard to understand. And I'm realizing that she's just, she sees this man's face. She's, she hears any accent at all. And then like her brain just turned off. Just like, well, I'm not going to understand anything he's saying. Or which, what she's really saying is I'm not going to put in 3% three, extra effort here. I'm making up that number. Maybe you even have numbers for it. But, you know, like I'm not going to put any extra effort in here. And it made it, the whole project was, was screwed, screwed up because she, I could, couldn't understand him at the beginning. Yeah, there, there's a, a difference between sort of understanding the content and the discourse and then a different question of understanding how much I can actually process the linguistic elements and so I tend to look at sort of that processing of linguistic elements but when you say someone's difficult to understand typically you mean their accent um and yeah I there's been lots of work I think that shows you know people have these expectations based on just saying faces and um, ethnicity or race um, and will perform poorly just based on that expectation and not actually based on the speech signal. I, I remember this happening to me a lot when I lived in South Korea and I was a teacher and that's where my career started and you know everybody in Korea learns English but they don't all speak English right um, and you know most of the time I would try to practice in Korean and then people would just run to be in English and I'm like alright fine I give up um <laughs> But then what would happen is sometimes I'd be someplace and I would start talking to myself, thinking people didn't understand me. And then they would be like, what are you talking about, man? And I'm like, oh, right. Because then I'm making the assumption, the opposite assumption, not that I'm not going to understand them, but that they're not going to understand me. Um, right. And that was sort of, you know, it's, it was a lesson I had to learn is not to make assumptions. Um, so which is different, I think, than the, than the normal one when you're in your, your home place and you're expecting people to, you know, you see someone who looks quote-unquote different from the home place and you're just expecting, well, right. they can't be from here. So this is going to be a problem for me. And, and I mean, maybe you have data on this. This is not a, a long-term, this is a split-second decision, but it is a decision. Or like, how? Yeah, what, what does the data show to you? Does it show that it's a decision or it's like completely automatic or, or what? Yeah, um... This actually reminds me of Rachel Weisler's work, um, and she looks specifically at sort of stereotypes and processing of African-American language, um, specifically in her dissertation. And I think she uses eye tracking data, so this is just, you're able to kind of track that sort of automatic processing based on where somebody's gaze will go. Um, and she does demonstrate a bit that this is sort of an automatic process. Um, I think there, that doesn't mean we can't stop it <laughs> from happening post-automatically. Um, but I do think, yeah, a lot of this is happening sort of automatically, sort of implicit biases are coming up. Um, and that's, that's harder to capture and change if you're not aware of them. Well, right. Because, I mean, I, don't, I think sometimes that, you know... A lot of the people who talk about implicit biases, I don't mean Harvard. I just mean when people have talk about it in discourse. You know, they're making. You know, they want they want to have implicit bias training so that everyone's aware of their biases. And I think sometimes it flattens it to be like, well, because we all have implicit biases, therefore we're all in the same place. And I'm like, that's not that's not what it means. 
Um, <laughs> and and uh, I think that sometimes certain people uh, will hear, you know, implicit bias. That's, you know, well, it's not my fault then. So. Right. <laughs> yeah, um, I think that that is definitely something that comes up a lot for people is, oh, well, if it's implicit, how, how do I stop it from happening? I guess I won't. <laughs> can't stop it. It's implicit. So, you know. Yeah. It's the same way that people like misunderstand that the word microaggression means interpersonal and think that it means small. Um, Mm. And because like, just like microeconomics, right. But like people think, you know, I, I, you know, micro, that's people say like something bad happens. That's not a microaggression. That's a macroaggression. I'm like, but it's not because it wasn't the society who did it. (laughs) Right. But this is, this is just the way that like academic terms always get, what can you do? You know, what can you do? Because like you're doing something that's really, really like intense and sciency. And even if you come up with something that's really, you know, profound and new, how could you even guard? I'm just this is a philosophical question that you don't have an answer to, but I'm going to ask you anyway. How can you, how can you stop? Like you come up with something and you coin a phrase or something and you found some amazing thing in your dissertation and you put it out there and then people in the linguistics community get really excited about it. And then it gets out there and then you know two months later they're going to be using it wrong. <laughs> and that's the yeah, thing. Yeah, this definitely reminds me of the discourse around critical race theory. Yeah. <laughs> Where it means something very specific and none of the general public is using it, right? Um, I think some of it is comes down, I mean, I don't have a great answer to this grand philosophical question, but I think some of it does come down to better science communication for linguists um, and being aware that our jargon can be misinterpreted. Um, I think we just expect that it's, it's a subjective and it's a science word, so people will figure it out. Um, and so I think being a little bit more... Um, understanding about that process and just coming back to like reinforce what we mean or doing linguists favorite thing which is coin a new word that means exactly the same thing and hope that it better caps what the intent and maybe will lead to less control let me tell you there's a whole bunch of new phrases in my book so you know i just just started putting nouns together like the, the words aren't new i just don't like the 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 the, the words are are, are very old I just put them together <laughs> you know I mean that's like yeah, the, the first yeah that's what I, I the first article I put out was about the altruistic shield those were not new words right but you know um and I, I put the the definition it's just, it's like a two-page article but hey now there's a thing out there um but anyway um, and I did a whole bunch of that in my book. So when it comes out, people, maybe they could just take the words, things like that. I'm talking about things like pathologization dependency, where I'm basically just saying it's not just that people depend on being better than other people. It's that people rely on other people being worse than them. Um, and But like it's after an entire book of where it would come out of nowhere. Um, but anyway, so speaking of people looking different um you're in oregon and this is, this is a place where um the reputation is just you know everyone is welcome it's a nice place and we're all gonna hold hands 
and we're going to experiment through life together. But it's a sundown state. So, you know, it's, uh, it, that wasn't that long ago. I mean, like, literally on the books. So, the, I, I find it interesting, and I don't find it too different from, like, a Vermont or something like that, where it has this very progressive reputation, and in some ways, deservedly, but I'm also like, but, but if there's really not, if there's, like, two black people, like, these things don't just happen. <laughs> so, you know, there's black people right. everywhere, except there's places where they aren't. So if it, if these are places where they aren't, then things happen to make it so. And in Oregon, we know what happened because it was in the, it was in the law. Um, that's not the case anymore, but there's still not that many. So what, well, tell me a little bit about what it's like. Where are you from? Are you from Oregon originally? I don't know anything about you, so. <laughs> I am not. I'm from Nevada originally. Okay. Northern Nevada. Oh, so, okay. So you, you really, you've been west. That's when you're, you've been. I've been west, yes. Anyway, so what's it yeah. like there with, you know, in terms of that? I mean, I guess that's not too different from what we did about it in terms of the, the demographics. Yeah, um, in terms of the demographics, it's not terribly different. I think Oregon is still wider um, than Nevada. And I, but I think the sort of situation is very similar where you have a lot of very uh, conservative and rural areas, and then you have sort of more um, liberal kind of centers. Um, but I think what's unique about Oregon is that it has this reputation for being such a welcoming and warm place to everyone. Um, but it's not, and part of that is just, as you said, um, it was built into the Constitution, which is different from many states, but um, it was built into the Constitution that Black people couldn't live here, um, and if they did overstay their welcome, you know, um, it was really violent for them. And so I think it wasn't until, I think, 2001, and I'm not a historian, so don't quote me on, on any of these explicitly, but a lot of that language was still in the Constitution until uh, 2001. So I think what we see is that there was never really an undoing of all of those harmful um, laws that were in place. And Oregon was quite a haven for the KKK. And so I think that didn't disappear once those laws disappeared. Um, so we do see a really strong uh, white supremacist kind of um, body in in parts of Oregon, but even within the city areas. So in Portland, I know that there's still some of that tension happening there. So I think what this means in the university context is it's very hard to um, recruit and keep um, people around because the community is unsafe um, for many people. And I don't think the university always prioritizes everyone's uh, safety over whiteness, I think. Yeah, I was talking to somebody who works in Maine, which doesn't have the same Clan history, but it's even whiter. Um, and, you know, but she was telling me, like, she, she really, they're trying to hire different people, but the people take one look at the town and they're like, mm, no um something 
you know, I think I've mentioned to you in passing about like when I think about where I want to go when this is done, like I'm not, first of all, I'm not leaving. My wife has a job, but we're not leaving, so it doesn't matter. But before that happened, um, you know, you look at the jobs and I'm like, you, you read about the department and every job ad is nine pages long. And they're like, come work in our department. This we value and we love. And this is so, and it's just like, all right, relax. Um, and then you look at the town and you're just like, but why, how could I raise my son there? Like, how could I raise my son there? You know, there's, there was a job I was looking at in Rhode Island. And the only reason I would have considered, again, that happening because my wife got a job for a different job, but like I considered it and like, the only reason we considered it is because my brother-in-law lives there and it would have been like, okay, okay, we can have like a brother over there or something like that. It's my sister, my wife's brother and they, they get along very well. So, um, you know, if we, if we could have, Rhode Island's a damn small, that no matter where you live, you could be near them. Um, <laughs> just, just a small state. But, uh, <laughs> so we could have found a way, like if I had gotten a job there, that like we could have lived right next to them or something like that. And that would have been really cool because they have a dog and, you know, it would have been, nice but like the town school is in is like 94 percent white like 94 that's really high <laughs> like that's not it's not even like 70 or like 75 which is not good but like you can see how that could occur but like 94 is like you know i was looking up demographics of various states at some point for this same reason not that i was looking to live in these states but i was just curious and i live in, in queens new york where Queens is one, you know, if Queens was its own city, it'd be like the fifth largest city in the country, right? Same, Brooklyn would be the fourth largest city in the country. All these parts of New York would be giant cities by themselves. They used to be before 1898. But anyway, um, so there's a couple million people in Queens. So this comparison isn't necessarily all that remarkable. But in Queens, which has groups from everywhere, um, but if I'm just looking at the black people, there's probably... You know, 500,000 black people in Queens, something like that, maybe 400,000, right? And if you add up the absolutely giant space of Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming, there's about 10 times as many black people in Queens as all three of these places combined. Um, and if, no, actually, no, 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 it's way more than that. It's, it's like 50 times as many because... The, the math I was doing is that there were there were 60,000 in those three at Utah, but 50,000 of them were in Salt Lake City. So it was just like, yeah, so that's like a, a you know, large chunk of the country where there aren't any of us. And of course, black people are not the only race that's not white. I'm just speaking from this particular number. Um, and that's a big issue, you know, and it's not, it doesn't even have to be as bad as the Klan being right there. You know, but then, but now you have also that. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely doubling down on the problems of, of Oregon. And I think the estimates of uh, the black population, I know Oregon students are only about 2% of the student body are black. And I think that matches roughly the demographics of the area. Um, and that's a 1% increase since 1968. Um, the natural, the Museum of Natural and Cultural History just has um, an exhibit right now about sort of uh, the state of Eugene. 
<laughs> and sort of its diversity and specifically looking at black people from Eugene. Yeah. And I think about that. Uh, because I, ha- I do have a friend who lives in Portland, a black friend who lives in Portland, but, um, and he's from here, so I've talked to him about it. But, uh, and I just, you know, it's not, like, 2% is just, that's not a lot. It's just not a lot. Um, which means that you can do the thing that I can never do, which is be in an all-white group of people and have a conversation with them about that sort of thing. And I will never have this data myself because once I'm there, it's not all white anymore. But but, uh, I'm always curious about this because, you know, some of the things we've talked about is like trying to do things differently. You try to push people in your apartment and that sort of thing. You know, what are some of the conversations like when you try to challenge what you have had, you know, assumed and pushed on you in groups where people aren't necessarily out there hanging out with the clan, but they don't really want to consider these things very deeply. Because my interest is not so much the clan. That's a problem, but that's not, that's not what I'm, I'm interested in right. the people who are, you know, Oregon progressive, but all their friends are white, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I definitely um, think that those are equal problems here. Um, yeah. I think it's, interesting because you have a lot of people who are really um at least at face value really dedicated to changing and like uh thinking about problems of equity and inclusion um until you suggest something that will actually make a difference and then i think you tend to get puzzled faces and a lot of pushback and I think some of the bigger problems with tackling this in, in sort of the Eugene context in a group of progressive white folks um, is really the discomfort in naming what's happening. Um, I think that they really are focused on sort of, we would love to recruit and we would love to do these things, um, have more people in this space. Um, but they're not so comfortable with naming the reasons why we might not have folks in that space already. Um, And I think that's one of the main challenges I've found. Like, we don't want to name the ideologies. We don't want to name racism. We don't want to name anti-blackness. Because our, we're all one happy family and we love to embrace everyone. So it's not possible for us to hold those ideologies or it's not possible for our institution to be holding those ideologies or whatever. Um, so I think there's a disconnect at that level and a little bit of, it's not me, so I don't know what to do about it, right? We, we want to take away the individual onus and, and also at the same time have a hard time saying how the individual participates in the structure. Um, so I think that, that those are the kind of core challenges I've, I've noticed in talking to people in Oregon. Yeah, I don't I- think that's that uncommon for other groups of white folks but you know that sort of like you said puzzled look which is to me is the most annoying thing because it's just like but you you do know right like you you know stop anyway (laughs) it's like but you but you know like like you're not stop don't come on now come on now it's because to me the disingenuousness is what drives me up the wall just like Mm -hmm. 
I know, but you know, once just, I really, sometimes I, I'm, people take me out of context. Sometimes I do appreciate when people are really direct with stuff and I'm just like, all right, okay, bye. But like, <laughs> like, you know, I don't, I'm just like, well, we don't have to talk about anything anymore. But like, you know, it's the same way where I, I should have gripped my teeth because I had some friends who I don't really talk to much anymore. Like they're like on my Instagram, but we don't talk anymore. Right. And they, you know, I mentioned 94% in that town in Rhode Island and like they lived near me here in Queens and they moved to a town still in the tri-state area, still in the, in the New York area. Um, cause they still work in the city and they moved to a town that was 92% white. How you get, if you're still in the New York area and the town is 92% white, like that town made that happen. <laughs> like right. you're, you're still in the New York, like suburbs and the town is that way. You, you, there's, you yourself didn't do it, but the town did it. And what did they say? Well, you know, it's just one of the, you know, a place with good schools. And I'm just like, you're all, you're almost there. I, you, I, you know what you're saying. You know what you're saying. Stop. Just come on now. Come on. That's like coded ways to <laughs> yeah. say what they right. I mean. Yeah. But then if you say it, they're like, oh my God. No, that's not what I meant. And, you know, and just trying to get people. Now, I have had success myself because when I'm direct with, when I, as a black person who studies this sort of thing, am direct with white people, they usually can't not be. So it's easier for me. And I, I, I wonder if for you, it's easier for them to pretend they don't know anything because you're also white. So they probably, like in some ways, you have an opportunity that I don't have because they probably be more more honest with you in some ways but in some ways they can probably play ignorant more with you I, I mean I wonder yeah I think that they probably are just being more honest that's that's the um, optimist in me that they're maybe just being more honest and they do need that extra push um, to kind of learn stuff um I think one of the surprising things to me coming into Oregon thinking it was, you know, this very progressive place was just how many, how far back people are in that learning process, given what I thought of Oregon. Um, so where I come into a conversation and I think, you know, acknowledging privilege is sort of the, the bare minimum people are still not even there yet and that that part I think is surprising to me in a university context or again um I know anybody else that um has dealt with academics especially of marginalized communities probably would say yeah we've been saying this forever but I think I just expected a little bit more of Oregon when I when I came here in that regard yeah the, it's it's frustrating because one of the reasons, you know, my research really changed partway through my my studies. You know, I've said this a lot on this show. I don't know if you've heard it, but I've said it to a lot of people, is that I came into my doctorate and I didn't really have a, like, radical bent. I mean, my, my ideas were here, but my writing was not planning to be that way. When I say radical, I'm not talking about left and right. I mean, yeah, I'm obviously leftist, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about wanting to you know, break down structures and that sort of thing. You know, that's what I mean. But um, I had no plans to break down structures. 
when I came in. My plan was a very sedate plan because my pre previous, not the current job, the employee training job, my previous job, I was working at a nonprofit and I did adult education. I've obviously been doing adult education for a decade now, but um, it was uh, like a nonprofit that did, you know, free English classes, right? That's what I did, an English teacher. And I managed the program and we didn't really have great attendance because it was free classes. And I'm like, you know, there's a lot of programs like this in and around New York and everywhere. But like, you got to pick a context for your research. And I figured I'd pick New York because I live there. And I said, what if I could find, like, if I could identify like an, an underexplored factor for why some people don't show up to these programs? Like, what if I could identify it? Um, and then if I could identify that, I could t tell all the programs, hey, here's what you don't realize you're doing. So I did that. And then there's not a lot of research on like, adult community center programs because the students come and go so they don't really make great participants because they're not there <laughs> um and but there's a few and they told me you know try to look at research within the last 10 years and this is 2018 so i found an article in 2008 and i was like barely um, like if i started my program now they wouldn't have let me use it i mean you can use other things when you're trying to but, but like when you're looking at the like Anyway, so I found it and, and they had interviewed students who had left the program. And that's what's usually hard because like, how do you find these students who left? They left. They're gone. <laughs> right. How are you going to find out why they left? They left, but um, interviewed them. And it turns out it was racism. <laughs> it's like, oh, the missing piece um because it was like basically the students who were what race they were wasn't specified but they were all from different countries and they weren't from europe let's put it that way um they basically said all of the well-meaning teachers assumed they didn't know anything so they left like all the all the teachers were like yeah i came to learn x y and z and the teachers thought i needed you know abc and i just got frustrated so i left um and it's like you know they're they're very kind but they, they they just like they think i don't know anything and i was like huh well then and so i started pulling at that thread and then all this stuff happened in 2020 obviously and then i had all these well-meaning right friends who suddenly just were just i'm like how can you how do you how are you surprised <laughs> you know this has happened to me several times, and I think that was when I finally gave up because, um, you know, I went to white school most of my life. Um, I went to a private school growing up, um, and then I went to private school for college, and, and, you know, and it, um, of course, the weirdly, the most diverse, the, the school where I had the most black classmates was the Ivy League school I went to, which is funny. Um, I go to a public school now which is diverse, but like, it's a cohort. So I'm only with like seven people. So, it's, I don't, so anyway, um, but I obviously, my whole education experience has been shaped by whiteness. Like everybody's is, but like my, especially, and I, you know, and racism and that sort of thing. And I, you know, kids tease me growing up and I just assumed because I was weird, whatever. But I think realizing and eventually coming to understand that I have undiagnosed disability and stuff like that. And thinking about all of this and like in 2014 after Ferguson and all that and I had people on my feed who were just saying outright racist stuff and I'm like what not how could you but how could you think that 
that I would be okay with this, right? And then I started reflecting. I'm like, why do people think that I'm a person you can say that around? Does that mean I want you to keep it secret? No, I just thought that I had better friends than that. Naive of me. So I got rid of all of them. And then in 2020, all my friends, I didn't get, I didn't have anybody saying racist stuff. I didn't have anyone like, well, he should have been doing this. Didn't have any of that anymore. But I did have everybody just asking me questions, just questions. And I'm just like, I just can't answer your questions anymore. Uh, and so that's why I made, I made a class about it. My wife was like, you, you, you wouldn't be answering their questions for free if you were a lawyer, right? You wouldn't do it. So I made a class about it. And, I, you know, from there, and then my dissertation ends up being interviews with people who took my class. Not because my class is so great, but because all of my work is very explicitly about whiteness. You can't go into one of my talks or read anything I write and be like, well, I, is this about diversity? I'm like, no, no, no. This is about whiteness. And so you have to have made the choice to be willing to engage with that sort of thing already. The point is, my stuff is not 101. The stuff you're talking about, like, that's assumed right. before you come to me. I'm not the first guy you go to. Um, you come to me after you do some other stuff. So my question is always like, how do people, I, I'm speaking of whiteness, but it could be gender, it could be other, you know, ability, it could be lots of things. How do people who are in the power position decide that they are not comfortable with that and what do they do? The example in this case was white educators who want to look at their complicity in whiteness, right? But it could be men, it could be whatever. Because um, I find that fascinating because as much as so much education research, especially, it's on how to uplift the minoritized students, even if they don't do it in a savory way. There's there's good ways to to do research that is you know youth participatory action research that's really helpful to to minoritized groups, but but it's still mostly like here goes some white ladies to ask black kids a question, and, and it's just like, but what if I ask the white ladies a question? It's not specifically ladies, but it's educators, so it's mostly women. So you know, um, and. I'm just trying to, to do a different thing than what's in the literature right now. Um, because I really do think we don't focus enough on the people who have the power to make changes, who really do want to make changes, but aren't quite doing it. We need just a little bit more guidance. And I'm not necessarily talking about your 101 people, but the people who are, I'm, I'm interested in the people who have taken that first step out of things. Now, how do I get them from step two to step three to actually doing stuff? You know, there is some research yeah. on how to get people from square zero to square one where your people are, but I'm not super right. interested in that because I, I don't know that from, I asked all these people in my study, only 10 of them, it was their interviews. And I'm just like, so how did you get to the point where you were interested in doing this? And they all had a very different answer. So I don't think there's one answer for how you get them to, to start. I think you just, just has to happen. I don't know, but I have some, some, you know, evidence for, how to move along and that's what i tried to do with my work mm -hmm. that was like a 10 minute monologue <laughs> no i like it yeah i'm thinking about there's lots of folks that are at ground one and then there's probably a lot of folks including myself that are in ground two or ground three um but a lot of the people that I see that are really trying to do that work, not the ground zero work, but like the, the really good work, um, 
are tend to not be in positions where they have a lot of power, at least in the academic structure. They're not tenured, they're graduate students, they're postdocs. Um, and so I don't know if maybe your research has talked to any, like has uncovered any of these things, how people manage to go from that position with very little sort of institutional power um, to kind of actually making some change um, when you have the higher highest positions of power still kind of at ground zero. Well, because again, obviously, like it's qualitative research, so the sample size doesn't really matter. But the right. point is, there's still not that many people. But I did have one guy who's a provost, um, and it was interesting to hear him talk about a hiring process that he was a part of versus a professor who I interviewed who was part of a um, a hiring process. Also, when we're talking about race and that sort of thing, because he's the provost. He literally changed the rules and made them do things differently, and then they hired their first black dean, right? Now, okay, one person, great, but they never hired one in their school before. So, so you know, it's only the beginning, but it, it's, it is a change, in, and that, that was in a place that's, you know, like conservative area, whatever. So, you know, you have to actually fully change the processes. Like, you have to go in there and change the processes. And then when I talked to the professor, because she couldn't change the processes, they could lightly advocate for different things, but then they hired a white guy. So, you know, <laughs> um, yeah, like you see the difference in terms of the power, but then how do you, that the question becomes, how do you maintain that comfort with challenging these things, but continue to rise? Or how do you do it from, you know, sort of the outside, the way I've been just, I'm just out here talking and writing, you know what I'm saying? Um, and I do think, because I was writing, I was working on a chapter Tuesday. Yeah, Tuesday. Um, and I was talking about the, the Widowson article from like 1984, we was talking about the native speaker. And, but it's actually, it's a plenary speech, Right. Like it just happened. It's it's actually a plenary speech from the TESOL conference of 1994, and I was making the point that although this is a widely cited article, because it's a plenary speech, it automatically was actually consumed by an audience because there were hundreds of people in front of him at some point, right? So in the time since then, it has become widely cited and influential and so forth. But uh, the point is, the plenary speeches they do matter, right? There's hundreds of people. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm giving one <laughs> for the first time soon, so that'll be fun. Um, hey, congrats! Yeah, we'll we'll see. Well, sorry, it's a keynote. I don't know if it counts as a plenary, um, but you know, keynote's just as big, I guess. Um, and yeah, so excited. But in person though, so like hundreds, you know, it'll be cool. Um, and I think that, but then there's also the fact that he was a man, so like, you know, he is doing, as far as I can tell, the right things. He cannot unman, right? Like, that's, that's just who he is. Um, but we also know that even in the heavily, you know, like, I, I forget what his actual degree is, and, and I don't need to dox him. But the point is, he's not in, like, the education field. Like, his degree isn't in education. His degree is in something else. Um, but, like, in a field like language or education, where most of the people who study it are right um you know education mm -hmm. language uh 
even in these fields, it's still, you got to be a certain type of person to get to the top, top. <laughs> like, who do you have to be to be, to, I don't just mean tenure track, which is its own thing, but I mean, tenure track, tenured, you know, chair, dean, you know, all the way up there, right? Like, mm-hmm. the same way as a black person or whatever, you kind of have to be able to play the game. In a way, and this is not just academia, that's any hierarchy, you know. That's true of anywhere, yeah. yeah. But in a way, because he's a straight white man, he I don't know that he had to do as much contortion to get there. And we just got his school and the world just got lucky that he's the right kind of guy. Like, he just ha- he didn't have to, you know, like, if I want to be anything like that, I'm trying to think what I would have to do to myself <laughs> to be the type of person that they would right. want to promote that highly. Like, by the time I got there, I would not recognize myself, you know, because, like, I'm, you know, I'll go through, oh, submit an application for something. I know, I know that one of the people in one of the search committees follows me, right? And yet I'm still out here just talking about whiteness. And... <laughs> I should shut up. But on the other hand, I also know that I will not succeed at the job. If, if, first of all, they can find everything. It's all there. So if I try to if I shut up now, what's the point? Second, if it's going to be a job where my skills are valued, then they're going to want that out of me. Right. Um, but on the other hand, like to get that, all the way up and I, i'm not saying i want that but i'm just but i am saying that you got to get there to make the changes in the, in the policies you know right. you can lobby you know if you're unions and that sort of thing you can lobby for collective bargaining smaller things but that's not going to change the hiring practices that's going to that may change how you are treated which is good right. and important you know you may be it is possible without very much individual power to build collective power so that you are less personally exploited, which is good. But to change the actual, like like right now I'm on a committee at my job. We have been talking about putting a survey together for like five fucking months. And we just, it's just like, we just want to put one fucking survey together because we want, we have changed, we have slightly changed the job posting to make it more equitable to take certain things out. It took us several months, but we did do that. Great. But the thing when I joined this committee, I pointed out, I'm like, how are we going to fucking know if we actually have more black people or whatever after the fact, if we don't know how many we have now? <laughs> Can we just gather some information? And it doesn't have to be numbers, because the number is not that important. It's not that big of a place, so percentage change is not going to, you know what I'm saying? But... Can we just find out what people think now? Can we just ask? And they're like, well, we got to run it by, we got to run it by, we gotta, and then I, we get to this running all the way up the flagpole to the big boss. And she told us, because we're on the racial equity committee, and then, which is in, within a certain team of the job. And, you go, and this is all technically part of university. So right, it's all, this is not quite academia because we don't, we aren't faculty, we're staff. But anyway, right, all the way up to the big boss. And she's working with the entire school, and they have a, an equity, diversity, and inclusion task force. So, well, it's a task force. So, you know, 
that <laughs> come up with these things when it's committee and task force. But it doesn't matter what they call a committee or task force. They're not spending any money on any of them, so it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Right. It's just people being able to... I don't think it's on people's resumes, but I think they're just being able to pad their ego by saying that they joined committees. You know, and I heard this from all the people because I didn't say this because this that's not the job of a researcher. But like a lot of them, when I asked them, because the two parts of the interview, the first part it was all one interview, but I mean, like the first part was like, tell me how you came to be a person who would take a class off of whiteness. Right? Tell me about your life, you know, that sort of thing. Um, anything you know about whiteness growing up, that sort of thing. And then tell me, you took my class, so now what are you doing? Right? And, you know, I can't tell you how many people were like, well, you know, I joined some committees. And I was like, <laughs> well, cause, but on the other hand, what, what other levers are they given in academia? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I have been on our department diversity committee for several years. And <laughs> most of the time I'm frustrated by the committee structure. And I think that that's just a general theme for diversity committees. But on the other hand, it's like, I don't know how else to try to advocate or, you know, do anything with the limited power I have other than this committee. So, yeah, other than in the classroom, I maybe can try there. But, yeah, it feels like otherwise very yeah. limited resources. Because, and then I give away my whole dissertation, but it doesn't matter to me, you know. But the point, it's not. It's not like, well, I'll still read it. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure people love it. Although, I will tell you, my work is compulsively readable. I do not write esoteric anything. I refuse. So, it is actually worth reading. Yeah. Um, you've read I stuff. I was being sarcastic. <laughs> Although, a lot, a lot of it's in my book anyway. Well, but, but the book has a different subject. Books about language and the dissertation is not about language. Um, it's just more about whiteness. Um, so, is that... It really is important to be explicit about this, right? About what you're talking about. You can't get at this stuff by talking about diversity. Um, well, first of all, diversity means something different. <laughs> like that's just doesn't, that's not what it means. Um, but right. also, because I my one of my, you know, I thought about doing this sort of thing years ago when I before I really got into my studies and I understood these things. Um, but I was like, maybe I'll be like a diversity person and that that doesn't mean i'll never get a job that's called that because that's what they're called but uh <laughs> you know i thought maybe i'll put together presentations on diversity that sort of thing and you know you realize that this is what you're saying about being able to distance yourself if you talk about a place that needs to be more diverse diverse from what <laughs> like right. what what is the norm <laughs> um and uh, the there, everyone who took my class, or the people who I interviewed, but the other people I talked to in my class, I just didn't record the, I didn't interview them, but like we talked. Um, you know, they were people who, at some point, they either had a class or a conversation or a friend or something, where they talked a little bit about being white, whiteness, and that sort of thing. I will tell you, not a one of them came into my class with I mean the white people there are people in my class who weren't white but I'm not not talking about them um but among the white people who took my class not a one of them came into my class with some lifelong understanding of whiteness they didn't learn when they were six 
right? They might have learned. Every, everyone told me they learned factually when they checked a box off on a school test, but like understanding it, every single one of them was an adult. Right. Um, and they had to be told explicitly. Now, is there, and I puzzle over this in the dissertation because I don't have any evidence one way or the other. Is there something innate in them that, that allowed them to be more open to it and not reject it? I don't know. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Because everybody probably hears it at some point and some people shut it down. You know? Right. But, and I speculate a little bit because they all have slightly different things. You know, like maybe it's this, maybe it's that, but I don't know. I really don't know. And I'm not saying, I'm not trying, I'm more definitive about what they did after the fact because there's a lot more similarity in what they did after the fact. Um, but you gotta be explicit with this stuff. Like we're talking about language and that sort of thing. And there's people in there who like part of what I'm trying to do in some of my writing now, cause I have a lot of things where I talk about how the discussion of native speakerism, they don't often talk about the racism and I'm like, but it's right there. It's right there. There's much more coming out now. I'm not saying it's not out there at all. Yeah. But like, you know, there's decades of scholarship on native speakerism and native speakers and why it's a problem and we shouldn't native speaker and so forth. And I'm like, Who? okay, you, you're all, it's right there. <laughs> you're, you're so close to it. <laughs> um, and Or like they'll mention race, but it'll be in a list of attributes. It'll be like, of course, the native speaker. And then it'll be like, you know, gender, race, nationality. I'm like, it's... You know, it's right there. It's it's just you're so close. Um, I don't always blame them because the scholarship hadn't really advanced yet. But I also like these were a bunch of white people talking about native speakerism who thought that they were really revolutionizing things because they were challenging something in the field. Um, like in that Widowson speech slash article, he's saying he probably he's right. Everybody listening to him is probably like, yeah, man, we don't think that native speakers are superior. Um, but who is that native speaker? And it goes back to, to your work too, in terms of like, you know, what are the assumptions and biases that people have? And it's like, okay, but who are the people? Right. Yeah, that's a big question in all of the fields, I think, who are the people? And I think this is a real big problem in language because there are, I think, maybe I'm being a Pollyanna about it, but I think there are a lot of really interesting, compelling people doing work in language. Um, and even on the side that's much more, you know, I don't know what to call it, uh, technical on your side than mine, um, they're still, they're really trying to get at interesting and important questions. But there's still so many people, because you all like to leave yourselves unmarked, who will not engage with that aspect of it because they think right. that, that that is not relevant. Right. Yeah, I struggle with this when reading a lot of experimental work. Um, we make lots of grand claims in our experiments, and oftentimes the participants go unmarked or the speakers we use for stimuli go unmarked and we just pretend that there's the lab is devoid of social context and people aren't bringing in assumptions about the speakers when they do these experiments um 
so I think a lot about that and who gets counted and sort of our understanding of dialect variation and things like that. Um, I don't know that there's one great, great answer to this. I think in experiments, I, I at least tend to mark who my participants are regardless and the identity of the speakers that contribute as stimuli or whatever. Um, but that's a lot to unpack depending on the, the sort of experiment that you're doing. But I think that that's really important. The last thing I'll mention before I close off is that I did a not very scientific study that was not IRB. It was just me looking at stuff. Um, I got a, but no, I mean, you know, it, it was real research. I just didn't do anything with it. Um, and I, I got a grant randomly, a very small grant. I don't know how it happened. My school basically thought I was doing well. And so they gave me some money. And I was like, what do I do with this? And they said, you can do whatever you want as long as you use it to something, something. I'm like, okay, that's not helpful. Um, so I just, the way I thought of it is that what would, what would I like to, what would I, what do I consider my time worth? And I gave myself that many hours to do the work. Basically, you know, dividing it by the grant amount. Right? So um, I basically looked at the citation practices of a bunch of language related articles. And I made a completely arbitrary, but it's my opinion, so decision about what is the thrust of this article. Is the thrust of this article, in my opinion, and I have my opinion, positionality was obviously very clear to me, trying to challenge the status quo, or is it not trying to challenge the status quo? So if it's just measuring something that they thought was interesting, and I'm like, you're just trying to build that CV, aren't you? Um, then I put it in one category. And if they're trying to challenge the status quo in some way, even if they're not necessarily talking about race, you know, because all of that's my focus, they're not, they don't have to be talking about, could it be my gender, you know, whatever. Um, and then I looked at the citations. I looked at who wrote the article. Uh, usually I use the first author, but if there were only two, I use both. If there were a whole bunch, I use the first author. And if there was one, I was, I used that. Um, because I was like, yeah, I don't, because for what I was doing, I was like, what are the races as far as I can tell of these people? And I did the same for the citations. And I found that, first of all, when the lead author was, or if it's one of two authors, was a scholar of color, as far as I could tell, then their citation practices usually had more scholars of color. But, first of all, you can't always tell. However, it is true when talking about being marked is that, look, if I found a picture of them and they look white and they don't say I'm from Puerto Rico, <laughs> then like, let's put it this way. If someone appears to be white, but they're actually something else, it's going to be somewhere in their bio. It's going to be mentioned in their work somewhere. Like it's going to show up. Right. Um, so Anyway, for my crude thing, I was like, all right, that person's white. Um, and then I looked at the same for the citation practices. Now, I couldn't get all the data, but it was a very clear correlation. However, there was a clearer correlation. Yes, scholars of color did tend to cite more scholars of color. But there was a clearer correlation between articles that were trying to challenge the status quo and citing scholars of color. And I, I talked about this in my last episode, which you haven't heard yet, but I mean the one that's coming out two weeks before yours, so, or four weeks before yours. So, you know, several weeks, several weeks from now. 
um, but uh, how this is true. And yeah, it's that like when when the things are unmarked, it, it, it really leaves a lot out of the discussion. And it, you know, the the just because someone's white doesn't necessarily have a determination on certain things, but we can't really leave it out from the discussion. You know? And it just goes to what I said on Twitter the other day, which people listening to this are like, you keep referencing things that happened the other day. You you know, <laughs> but it was several months ago. <laughs> but um you know, where I'm always, there's so many articles and headlines that, that say parents say, and it's like, which parents? Right. It's like, I know which parents. And headline writer, you know which parents. Because if it was black parents, it would say that. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring up the, the sort of breakdown of scholarship. Um, we've been talking about re redesigning our syllabi and trying to diversify the voices on the syllabi and I think some folks have a little bit of resistance because it's like this is my course and I don't want somebody else to tell me what to do with it um and so I think yeah the people that are willing to adapt to that change or do something about it um, tend to be positioned very differently in the department yeah and then, I won't go into details <laughs> but like it's also because what it's always a proxy for something else because like I do understand that people want their academic freedom and they don't want to be told what to do but then you're in a point where you're using what could be a legitimate argument to forestall a necessary change it's like it's the same way that people tend to argue with my stylistic choices in an argument in an essay when I'm making a, what I think is an interesting argument. It's like, you might be right about my stylistic choices. Like I disagree with you, but you might be right. But is that really the reason you're doing this? I'm not right. sure. Yeah. Um, I just feel like it's, so when the, my point is like, they're not necessarily wrong on their face for wanting to hold on to their freedom. But I do think, and right. they would never admit this, that it's like, they they might not even understand it, but it's a smokescreen for something else. And yeah. since they don't yeah, believe it to be that, you know, you'll never get them to understand it unless they come to the understanding themselves. Right. So, Kaylin, uh, I think we had a useful conversation here. Um, yeah, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it was fun talking to you about Oregon and language and, and a whole lot of things i don't even know what i'm gonna title this because we talked about a lot of things um and we touched on a lot of different pieces it'll, it'll probably be something about oregon um but yeah uh if you have any final thoughts or anything that you uh want to share with folks uh this would be the time i don't think i have any closing thoughts i'll leave you to the words of wisdom <laughs> All right. Well, again, thanks, folks, for listening. If you uh, enjoy the show and you are able to do so, you can always support the show on Patreon. The link is in the show description. Otherwise, I will not see, but you all will be back here again in two weeks for the next episode. Thanks for listening.
Thank <laughs> you.